Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 2, Missing the Mark. I'm Brandon Seal. The transatlantic leg of the Panfilo de Narvaez expedition to the New World had played out like a highlight reel of the previous half-century of Castilian conquest. First, the Narvaez expeditionaries had stopped in the Canary Islands, which Cabeza de Vaca's own grandfather had conquered. Then, in Hispaniola, the site of Columbus's first settlement. And lastly, in Cuba, from which point Hernán Cortés had launched his conquest of Mexico. And yet this expedition was off to a rough start. By November of 1527, it had already lost 140 men to the boomtown atmosphere of Hispaniola, which reduced its crew from 600 to about 460. The one-eyed commander of the expedition, Governor Panfilo de Narvaez, still hadn't managed to find a pilot with actual navigational experience in the northern Gulf of Mexico, and supplies in the Castilian Caribbean were in such high demand that Narvaez couldn't even scrape together sufficient provisions to feed all of his men for more than a few weeks. And so as soon as his five ships touched Cuba, Narvaez decided to split up his forces. While he hung back to search for a pilot, he dispatched the expedition's treasurer, Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, to go ahead with two of his ships and 60 men to the tiny port of Trinidad on the southern coast of Cuba. These are still the early years of European exploration of the Caribbean, we need to recall, and its larger weather patterns remained a bit of a mystery. Still, a certain leeriness of sea travel in the late fall had started to take form in Castilian sailors' minds. And when the more seagoing types saw the poor harbor at Trinidad and noted the, quote, not good, no buena weather indications that morning, they expressed their reservations out loud. Still, most of the 60 men dutifully remained on board when a smaller party, including the man holding the purse strings, Cabeza de Vaca, went ashore to acquire what supplies they could. Less than an hour after Cabeza de Vaca had disembarked, however, the sky darkened and a north wind picked up. Soon, sheets of rain began to fall. The wind intensified. There was a, quote, mighty roar and a great noise like voices or the sound of bells, flutes, tambourines, and other instruments, end quote. Houses and buildings began to splinter and disintegrate. Cabeza de Vaca and his comrades had to lock their arms and walk a link together, eight men across, just to keep from being carried away. Then, Cabeza de Vaca remembers, the winds changed, blowing just as fiercely now from the opposite direction, quote, contrary winds crashing in from all directions at once. Trees were stripped of their leaves, then their limbs, and then finally snapped in half and splintered like matchsticks. The grass even was torn out by its roots, quote, never has such a fearful thing been seen in Europe, end quote, Cabeza de Vaca tells us. The storm, the first detailed European account of a hurricane, raged all night with apocalyptic fury. And yet the truth is that those, like Cabeza de Vaca, who experienced the storm on shore, were the lucky ones. The next morning, as Cabeza de Vaca and his entourage tried to return to their ships, they were shocked to discover that they were gone, just plain gone, along with everyone on board. The only evidence that they found that their ships had even existed was a lifeboat, that they discovered in a tree a mile away 
and two bloated bodies that washed up 30 miles down the coast. After the hurricane, the Narvaez expedition was down to two-thirds of its initial strength, from 600 to 460 to now 400 souls, and it hadn't even set foot yet on the American mainland. And not only had they failed to pick up any additional provisions in Trinidad, they had now additionally lost all the provisions aboard the two ships that lay at the bottom of the harbor there. Cabeza de Vaca and the few survivors limped back to rejoin Narvaez and the rest of the expedition with their tail between their legs. Narvaez doesn't seem to have punished Cabeza de Vaca or any of the other officers, though even 10 years later, Cabeza de Vaca does feel compelled to go on at length about the incident and to defend his judgment. He's made a little bit more persuasive by the fact that the man that Narvaez had come up with in the meantime to pilot his expedition would prove to be infinitely more responsible for far greater losses in the future. Somehow or another, Narvaez had finally come across a man who claimed and who may actually have had experience sailing the Gulf of Mexico and whom he hired immediately as his chief pilot. This new chief pilot didn't get off to a great start, however. Only three days off the southern Cuban coast, the new pilot grounded Narvaez's ships on some shallow sandbanks. After 15 days of futile efforts, it was only the high tide of another storm that finally dislodged them. From there, the newly reunited Narvaez expedition sailed around the western tip of Cuba and onto its northern shore, where on March 1st, the expedition sighted Havana, where they intended to make one last stop for provisions. Yet another storm struck them, however, and carried them out of sight of Havana and into the Gulf of Mexico. It was almost as if nature was conspiring against them, or was otherwise impatient to hurry them along to their ultimate destiny in Florida. This seems to be what Narvaez might have believed, anyway. He decided not to fight fate any longer. He gave up on Havana, he gave up on trying to reprovision, and he ordered his pilot to point the ships west toward the Rio de las Palmas on the Mexican coast. They couldn't seem to outrun the storm, however. It kept raining for days at a time. They went whole weeks without seeing the sky. It's the wrong time of year for this to have been a hurricane, and the account doesn't suggest that it was nearly so violent. But for 50 days, the Narvaez expedition's ships tossed and turned in the churning gulf until eventually, even the pilots lost any sense of where they were. So disoriented were they that when on April 10th, 1528, they sighted the western coast of the Florida Peninsula, they convinced themselves that they were looking at the eastern coast of Tamaulipas, 1,000 miles away. How had they so badly miscalculated? How do you think you've traveled 1,000 miles west when in fact you've gone about 100 miles northeast? It's one of the great mysteries of this story because even years later, the expeditionaries will still be arguing over what side of the Gulf of Mexico they had landed on. Professor Andres Resendez offers the best explanation that I've heard yet for this enormous navigational error. Recall, this is an age before latitude and longitude. So what 16th century Castilian sailors relied upon for navigational purposes was dead reckoning. Dead reckoning defines every point as a distance and a cardinal direction from another point. For example, Laredo is 130 nautical miles from San Antonio on a 200-degree heading. Of course, there are three major problems with this method. One, even a 32-point compass is only so accurate over the course of a day, much less over the course of 50 days in turbulent seas. 
Two, speed and distance on the open ocean are incredibly hard to estimate. And three, your direction of travel doesn't always match your heading. Why not? Because the currents on which you are traveling are themselves moving at a speed and in a direction that you can't accurately measure without a frame of reference. If you have a southeast wind pushing you off your 200-degree course to Laredo, you might have to hold a 180-degree heading just to end up where you want to be. And the Narvaez expeditionaries had it even more difficult because they were sailing square into the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream, as its name suggests, is essentially a river of seawater equivalent to 2,000 Mississippi rivers rushing west through the Straits of Florida. As Professor Resendez points out, the Gulf Stream flows at more than four knots, which doesn't sound like a lot, but four knots times 24 hours times 50 days equals almost 5,000 nautical miles. Which is to say that in order to sail 1,000 miles from Cuba to the Mexican coast and into the Gulf Stream, you actually have to cover almost 6,000 miles of water. And so if the Narvaez expeditionaries had miscalculated their speed and distance by even one-sixth over the course of 50 days, it would have been more than enough for them to have believed that they had crossed the Gulf of Mexico and arrived at their intended destination on the Tamaulipan coast. All that said, when they spotted the mainland on April 10th, 1528, there's one other thing that it feels like they should have picked up on. The coastline was on the wrong side. I mean, as long as the sun is shining, you can tell east from west, can't you? And the coastline they were looking for should have been on their west. The coastline they had sighted was on their east. Like I said, it's all really hard to reconcile, except to chalk it up to the entire expedition's general confusion after 50 days swirling around in the Gulf of Mexico. All that swirling around, however, did make it easy for Narvaez to convince his men to disembark, which they did, somewhere near modern-day Tampa Bay on April 12, 1528. Cabeza de Vaca misremembers this date as Good Friday in his narrative. It was actually Easter. And then Cabeza de Vaca tells us that only 42 of the original 80 horses survived the storm and joined the expeditionaries on land, a number which has always struck me as oddly precise, particularly given the fact that Cabeza de Vaca is recording this number almost a decade later. Come to think of it, April 12th is oddly precise as well, especially given that he seems to be misremembering which high holy day the 12th was. 16th century Castilians took their religious calendar seriously and tended to name geographical features for the saints' days that they had been discovered on. By choosing to remember, or rather misremember, the date of their landfall as Good Friday rather than Easter, is Cabeza de Vaca employing a bit of literary license here to signal something? Like, is he suggesting that he and his fellow expeditionaries were symbolically dying or something? Would Easter be too hopeful a day for a devout Catholic in the 16th century to have fallen into the kind of misfortunes that Cabeza de Vaca is about to endure? And what about that oddly precise number 42? The main Christian or biblical significance that I come up with for 42 is that that is the exact number of wanderings that the Israelites suffered after escaping from Egypt. Interestingly, Cabeza de Vaca is about to embark on a series of wanderings to rival that of the ancient Israelites. Is the number 42 so associated with wandering in his Catholic mind that he's now projecting this back onto the number of horses who survived their voyage to Florida? I don't want to make too much of this right now, 
But I also don't think I can overplay how deeply the language and symbolism of 16th century Castilian Catholicism is woven into Cabeza de Vaca's account. To some modern readers, it's off-putting, and to others, it's cause even for doubting his reliability. I don't want to get into that yet. For the near term, I just want to establish that I do think it's deliberate. Because there's another alternative artistic reason why Cabeza de Vaca might be using these kinds of clues. He might be using them to give us signposts as readers, helpful tools for interpreting what he was feeling or enduring at any given moment. And he might even be pointing us to some larger purpose that he believes his narrative is fulfilling, in the same way that he and his fellow expeditionaries believed that they were serving some larger purpose in coming to the New World to, quote, conquer those lands and at the same time bring the natives to knowledge of the true faith and the true Lord and service to your majesty, end quote. And indeed, the first natives that they encountered in the New World were right there in Tampa Bay. A small Indian village sat on the edge of the bay and seems to have been why Narvaez chose to disembark there. He and 300 or so of his men, including Cabeza de Vaca, entered that little native village and tried to open lines of communication there. The first exchange seemed promising enough. The natives bravely came forward to Narvaez's men and offered them venison and fish, a welcome gift for the underprovisioned and travel-weary expeditionaries. And yet there's no indication in the text that Narvaez offered any gifts in exchange, which would seem to be a pretty elemental breach of the basic principles of human reciprocity and, well, frankly, morality. It's not like Europeans were unaware of this custom of exchanging gifts. Narvaez had brought along beads and other trinkets for precisely this purpose. And yet Cabeza de Vaca's account suggests that Narvaez felt no need and made no effort to reciprocate the natives' gifts. It's almost as though the one-eyed expedition commander interpreted the gifts as tribute, not as an opening gesture of friendship. As proof for this idea, we can take the fact that on the very next day, Narvaez raised his standard on the Florida shore and read aloud the requerimiento, that official statement of Castilian conquest that every conquistador was required to read aloud, claiming the land in the name of the king and offering the natives either the protection of the Castilian crown or, in the alternative, subjugation by it. But when Narvaez read the requerimiento on or around April 13, 1528, the day after he had disembarked, there were actually no Native Americans around to hear it. Perhaps recalling earlier slaving expeditions, and certainly recognizing that this Narvaez fellow didn't even understand the basic principles of reciprocal exchange, the natives had cleared out, abandoning their little village on the shore. Of course, they wouldn't have been able to understand the requerimiento anyway, even if they'd hung around. None of them spoke Spanish, and none of the expeditionaries spoke any of the natives' languages. When Cortés had conquered Mexico a few years before, his greatest strength wasn't his generalship, but rather his diplomacy, his deal-making ability. He was able to quickly build a coalition of tribes suffering under Aztec domination and begin extracting tribute from them. With these new allies at his side, and with revenue rolling in, he had made himself the de facto lord of Mexico, regardless of what Montezuma or the Spanish king may have thought about it. Just a few years later, in Peru, Cortés's cousin, Francisco Pizarro, would reuse the same game plan perfectly, with the same results. But Narvaez never seemed to appreciate the diplomacy piece of Cortés's strategy. 
Recall that it had been Narvaez himself who had been sent to recall Cortes from Mexico with twice as many men and horses as Cortes had under his command, but he had still lost the battle with Cortes, precisely because Cortes had outmaneuvered him diplomatically, leveraging his Native American allies and his revenue stream to buy the loyalty of the men nominally serving under Narvaez. And similarly, here in Florida, Narvaez had so turned off the first natives that he met that they disappeared before he could even figure out how to talk to them. And in their haste to flee, the natives inadvertently played a fittingly cruel trick on the man who had refused to exchange gifts with them. Amongst a pile of fishing nets and other unremarkable gear, they had left behind a, quote, golden rattle, end quote. Well, as you might imagine, this golden rattle fired the expeditionaries' imaginations. If these natives have left behind a solid gold rattle, then they must surely have carried off infinitely more treasure with them. And the expeditionaries let their imaginations run wild with visions of a Floridian Tenochtitlan hiding somewhere further inland. We don't know the exact details of what the 300 Narvaez expeditionaries did next in that Native American village on Tampa Bay. I'm guessing they started turning the village inside out and searched for more artifacts. But they hung around long enough that eventually the natives came back. And this is a pretty remarkable act of courage on their part to return to face off against a larger group of aliens dressed in shining Castilian armor with 42 of them attached to four-legged beasts. Malnourished four-legged beasts by this point, but impressive creatures nonetheless. But the natives were pissed off. And in this case, the language barrier didn't hinder them in getting their point across. In Cabeza de Vaca's words, these natives, quote, made many gestures and threats and it seemed as if they were telling us to leave the country, end quote. Cabeza de Vaca really dwells early on at this point in his narrative on the Narvaez expedition's lack of an interpreter and their inability to communicate with the Florida natives. Cabeza de Vaca's subsequent experience would, of course, prove to him the importance of being able to communicate, but here again, he might also have been thinking of the example of Cortez. Cortez's secret weapon in his war of diplomacy in Mexico was his multilingual native mistress, known to history as La Malinche. La Malinche helped him quickly establish lines of communication and understand the political dynamic of the Aztec Empire. By contrast, Narvaez would never have a Malinche and would never even really be able to understand the words of the natives amongst whom he had just landed. Instead, when the next day some of Narvaez's scouts captured four natives spying on them on the edges of their camp, Narvaez jumped straight into interrogation mode and began asking them where he could find corn. No small talk, no gifts, no diplomacy, just right into corn. And again, that may be a surprise to you if you thought he was going to ask for more golden rattles. In part, this is because his men, and especially his horses, were hungry at this moment. But raising corn is also more significant because the ability to cultivate corn implies social organization. And it creates an economic surplus that allows those societies to support ruling elites. Corn marked the kinds of societies that Castilians wanted to conquer. Gold is great, but gold is just a one-time windfall. And 20% of it goes back to the crown and the rest probably gets raked by the executive officers of the expedition. But a large, settled corn-raising society promised generational, dynastic wealth to any member of the expedition who might be awarded a small encomienda in that society that he might rule as his own. That is what Narvaez and many of his men were after. 
To Narvaez's delight, the four captive Indians responded that they did know where he could find corn. They led the expeditionaries back to their own village nearby, where they found a few sad heads of unripe corn still on the stock. It was pretty far from being a Floridian Tenochtitlan. Then, just as the expeditionaries were about to blow them off, the natives showed them something else. At some point in the previous few years, several crates of clearly Castilian origin had washed onto their shores and been recovered by the natives in this second village. The natives seemed to hold the crates in reverence, like a religious totem or something. Logically enough, I suppose, given how strange they would have looked and how mysterious their arrival would have been. Then, the natives gestured to the expeditionaries to look inside. The expeditionaries opened the crates, only to find to their horror decomposing, folded-up Castilian corpses staring back at them. It was gruesome, and it turned the stomachs of the Franciscan friars, who were also appalled by how the corpses had been dressed up with painted deerskins and brightly colored bird feathers in what must have been some kind of native religious ritual. They ordered the bodies and the crates burned. More likely than not, the crated Castilians were the unfortunate victims of a shipwreck somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico, carried to Florida by the same Gulf Stream that had deposited the Narvaez expeditionaries there. And yet perversely, finding dead Castilians and tropical-style headdresses suggested to the Narvaez expeditionaries that they were actually closer to Mexico than they were. And inside the crates, fate had left one more cruel enticement for the expeditionaries. Trace amounts of gold. Narvaez retrieved the gold and held it out in front of the native villagers. Where is there more of this, he asked, getting straight to the point. The natives, apparently, had little difficulty detecting the expeditionary's peculiar obsession with the shiny stuff, and even less difficulty in detecting an opportunity here to be rid of them. Oh, gold? There's lots of that, way up north. Not here, the natives told them, but far away from here. Of course, they may not have been just putting Narvaez off. They gave him specific details. They told him the name for the great city where so much gold might be found. Apalache. Though it's not a name that conjures images of prosperity today, in learning the name Apalache, Panfilo de Narvaez believed that he had just learned the name of his Floridian, Tenochtitlan. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode on RevardReport.com, home of nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. We're telling important stories here, but a story's power comes from its being shared with others. So please, like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache. It's composed by Kevin Graham and available on Soundstripe. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, to Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State University, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about us and our other projects, you can check out our website, www.brandonseal.com.